Welcome to Personal Finance Cat, where I share my personal take on personal finance. All right, Calanthea, welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. I'm yeah. doing great. I'm very happy that it's Friday. <laughs> yeah, yeah, same here. Happy Friday. So Calanthea and I met when I was in graduate school. She's a lot younger than me, but um, that's how we got to know each other through some common friends. And, um, you know, I started kind of following you when you were posting about all these great things you were doing with Fast, especially. I remember there was a post where you were at the New York Exchange or maybe NASDAQ. You were literally the picture featured on the <laughs> screen. I was like, wow, that's awesome. In my heart, I was like, you go, girl, represent. <laughs> so I started kind of following you more closely since then. And now fast forward a couple months, I guess. You're now the co-founder at Masa Finance, a Web3 soulbound identity protocol. And your work has been featured on CNBC, Blockworks, Coindesk, TechCrunch, Cointelegraph, Fintech TV, Crypto Coin Show, and more. Very impressive. Masa is on a mission to bring the next 1 billion people to Web3 by building the identity passport for users and developers. Prior to Masa, Kalanthea has been a serial entrepreneur slash investor. She was, a co she was a founding member of PayPal's venture capital arm, a venture partner at SoGal Ventures, an investment partner at the Community Fund, as well as the vice president of business development at Fast. So again, very impressive for someone so young. I don't even know if you're 30 yet. And for someone who has come to this country as a first generation immigrant. So kudos to all of that. Do you want to add anything to that intro briefly? What's the latest? <laughs> I just turned 30. <laughs> I, I guess I'm not so young anymore. I just turned 30. I really appreciate the kind words. So maybe let's just jump in. Um, I, I'm very interested in hearing about Masa. I saw a little bit on your website. I kind of have an idea, but to be honest, I'm not that familiar with Web3, DeFi and all that good stuff. So for those of us who are not sort of in the trench of things, can you talk a little bit more and explain what Masa does? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, so I'll probably make a web two or the real world, so-called real world analogy. Uh -huh. um, imagine the equivalence of um, web three in the real world. In web two, um, the metaverse will be the world that we live in, right? It's mm -hmm. uh, not the virtual reality world, but the real world that we live in. Uh, the currencies that we use, whether it's USC, RMB, uh, JPY, etc., will be cryptocurrency in the Web3 world. And then the technology or the underlying layer that powers the entire Web2, let's say whether it's an internet for technology or the power grid for our day-to-day -day life, will be blockchain in Web3. And our passport, our ID card, our FICO score, and our reputation score that we use in Web2 is what we are building for Web3 um, at Masa. So we're trying to be the identity layer or the identity passport for any users, developers, or audience in Web3, simply put. So imagine it's an aggregation of your financial identity, your non-financial identity, your reputation score, your credit score, and everything combined. That's what we're building at Masa for Web3. Got it, got it. That's a very helpful explanation. But my first reaction is because you hear about the decentralization, right? Or almost hmm. anonymity because it's not 
sort of monitored by anybody, especially not by any central company or government. How is that reconciled with what you're trying to do, which is identifying people? Can you kind of explain that a little bit more? There's a difference between having a centralized authority identifying people than use their own self-sovereign identity. You let's take name as an example. You don't have to showcase your real name in Web3, nor do I spell out my legal name and my middle name and my mother's maiden name in Web3. I have a moniker that I use in Web3, and that is sufficient. Instead of having to store all of your personal sensitive information by a centralized repository, like what we do in Web2 and what we do with big tech like Facebook and Instagram, in Web3, what we're building at Masa is a self-sovereign and user-owned identity. You as a user can choose to share selectively your information with the requesters, whether that's a lender you're applying for a loan from or um, someone else, like a project you're trying to enter and verify that you're not a bot. So you as a user has the ultimate power and authority of owning your identity um, through the product that we're building on Masa in Web3. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah, I can see the huge need for that sort of, let's call it a bridge to connect the user's identity versus whoever the requester is to try to understand who is actually using their product or service, because otherwise you might have criminal stuff or something that's not even sort of permitted or wanted by whoever is providing the goods or services. So can you talk about maybe the landscape in that industry? Are you the leading organization that's doing this or is there other competitor you have? What's sort of the landscape? Yeah, uh, so going back to the comment you just made, um, identity is not just about anti-crime. I think in Web2, we generally associate with doing KYC as anti-money laundering, anti some sort of criminal activity. However, Identity is really all of your personal information and identifying information in one. You as a user will be able to use it to unlock different kinds of utilities. So we normally see it from that lens. And also, if you consider the problem of bots in Web3, that's a major problem. I recently read a story, a a study that says um, 40% of uh, Web3 gaming accounts are bots. And there's no good way of preventing bots from happening without properly authenticating user. So that's another lens we take when we think about identity, why there needs to be an identity, the utility and use cases of having a self-sovereign, user-centric, privacy-preserving identity in Web3. Mm -hmm. And then to a question about uh, the landscape in Web3, Uh, Of course, there are projects building everything. That's just the nature of and the beauty of the Web3 ecosystem. If there's a problem, there's always a project addressing that. But with something like identity, the challenge is that the prevailing approaches like decentralized identifier and verified credentials have been difficult to integrate because of the very fragmented standards out there. To give you an example, For decentralized identifier, there are more than 50 standards for a developer to integrate. But when we think about identity, most of people would prefer to have a more standardized way to consume and to integrate with someone's identity. That's the reason why in May last year, 
Vitalik, the creator of um, Ethereum, published a paper called Decentralized Society, Finding Web3. So in the paper, Vitalik introduced the idea of a soulbound token or SBT. So soulbound to token is the atomic level of identity and attribute within Web3. And Masa is the first project that brought the concept of a soulbound token into reality. Only three months after the concept being introduced, uh, we and Masa launched the first Sobon Token project on the Ethereum testnet in August. In the past six months or so, we have amassed close to half a million of Sobon tokens being minted by more than 100,000 users across 40 different countries in the Web3 world. So we're the project, first project who brought this very foreign or remote sounding concept into reality. And we're the fastest growing project in the SBT or Soulbound token space. That's awesome. So I was wondering why the Soulbound name, I thought it was some sort of metaphor, but I guess I yeah. now know there's a token associated with that. I have a very rudimentary understanding of cryptocurrency. So can you explain Soulbound token as a token or cryptocurrency? What's, I guess, the utility or the functions of that particular token? Yeah, so first of all, I would just take a step back in sharing my personal view on uh, what is token and why is it why it is not the same as cryptocurrency. Okay. I see cryptocurrency as any currency that similar to all the fiat currencies you'll be using in the real world. Um, there, there's Ethereum, there's Bitcoin, there's Solana, etc. Those are all circulating currency, just like USD, RMB, JPY, etc. That we have in the real world. Versus token, it's a more technical concept. Token does not equal currency. And then diving one layer deeper into Sobound token. Sobound token is basically a non-transferable NFT that is used to represent your identity. So what we're talking about, like the MASA, uh, what we just discussed about different kinds of utilities, what kind of use cases, why identity matters. Sobon token is basically the technical infrastructure or the technical concept that supports a MASA identity. Okay, that's helpful. Good explanation. Um, so I want to ask you, what's your overall outlook for Web3 and crypto, especially since now some would call we're in a crypto winter and the macroeconomic environment is certainly not helpful because you see all these layoffs from tech companies. What is your view of the long term prospect of the industry? Yeah, it's not the first time there's a crypto winter. There has been multiple cycles in the past. Um, my co-founder first got into the crypto space around 2013, 2014 as one of the first solo miners of Dogecoin. And he has personally experienced and witnessed three cycles already in the crypto space. So yeah. the concept of crypto winter is nothing new. It is an extremely cyclical industry. And you as a crypto builder or user would almost have to anticipate the cycles in front of you and what you're experiencing. So I'm not personally scared by the crypto winter, although it does um, raise a few questions, right? It's very sobering. First of all, a lot of tourists who are just in the crypto hype for a quick buck nowadays, there's no quick buck to be made in crypto. So mm -hmm. a lot of tourists have left the station. 
Kuslev are real builders who see potential in crypto and blockchain and Web3 as technology and then using the technology to deliver real utility. If we take a step back and review a few cycles we have been through in the crypto space, the first cycle really focused on using cryptocurrency as a new way of um, like building wealth and building value. That's the reason why exchanges are really popular during the first cycle. And then we got into the second cycle during which NFT and the sense of ownership or membership came into vogue because people realized that cryptocurrency or blockchain creates a more transparent value exchange. You as an artist would be able to circumvent the different parties in the value chain, whether that's your agency or that's um, the company that you signed with, extract different kind of value from your work. Instead, through blockchain and NFT, you'll be able to establish a very transparent and direct value exchange with your users and community members and fans. That's the reason why NFT and the associated concept of value exchange and membership came into vogue, which created a different hype. Now, looking into the future, I really do think that um, utility is going to be what's, going, what's very, very important in Web3. How can you bridge Web2 and Web3? How do you use uh, technology that made Web3 possible to deliver real-world utility, things people can benefit from in Web2? I think that's what's going to drive the next cycle in crypto, basically real-world utility. Taking a utility-driven lens instead of speculation-driven lens will be key for crypto builders as we hopefully um, preserve our energy, go through the winter, and welcome the next summer. Yeah. Yeah, so that actually kind of triggered this question in myself, right? As you were saying, the utility lens is very important or critical in the next round. Would you be able to, for example, think about even for your business, right, if you want to monetize it? So can you sort of even go with the ad route? Because if you kind of know the identities of a person, even though you don't know their name or the sensitive information, but you know what they like, what they want to see, that kind of thing. Would you be able to kind of build ad platform on that? Yeah, um, it's not a use case that we're currently working on, but definitely something I've been thinking about. And by the way, we do make money. We actually made uh, our first uh, 100,000 in revenue in the first seven oh, days wow. after we on nice. Ethereum mainnet two weeks ago. Thank you. Oh, um, so when it comes to ads, the big problem people, a lot of people have with Web2 ad platform like Google and others is that uh, you as a user, your personalized information is being used by a third party, in this case, big tech, to monetize. You as a user uh, do not benefit directly from a monetary perspective from your information being utilized. Mm -hmm. And the promise of Web3 is that if I want to monetize my personal information, I can because there's a more transparent and direct value exchange. So to your question, absolutely. Once I become an authenticated user and some of my behavioral preferences or whatever is being recorded, I should be able to, as a user, to monetize that. I can share such information with the other party and there should be a fair value exchange whereby I get paid in some monetary or non-monetary format. 
by the person or by the project that is requesting my personal information. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think that's where kind of people are hoping where this could go. So you sound very knowledgeable about all of this. How did you learn all this? And how did you transition from FAST, which may be related, I'm not exactly sure, but how did you kind of go into this industry? And then how did you learn so much about it? Yeah, so um, most of my career has been working on FinTech. Um, So when I first started, I was working in traditional finance and investment banking, but I was working with financial institutions. So working with big banks, broker dealers and fintech companies and payment processors, et cetera, on everything ranging from um, correspondent banking, international payments, trade finance, credit and lending facility to mergers and acquisition. Um, And that really opened up a lot of a world of possibilities and drawbacks in TradFi to me. I've seen firsthand how flawed many infrastructure is in traditional finance. And that's how I thought of using technology to solve some of the problems I was seeing. That's what got me into FinTech in around 2015, 2016 or so, when FinTech started to become a really uh, a emerging concept back then. Um, I moved to California, uh, to Silicon Valley, and network and hustle my way into PayPal Ventures, uh, PayPal at the time um, had a lot of cash on the balance sheet. And we're just thinking about using acquisition and investment as a way, as a wedge to get into new markets, new product and innovations. So me and my boss uh, went to PayPal's board. We proposed that we're going to set up a venture capital practice for PayPal, using it as a way to learn new innovation, breaking to new technology and new markets. We eventually raised a $350 million fund, PayPal Ventures. Um, At PayPal Ventures, um, I think I was really lucky. It was timed very right because it coincided with the wave of fintech innovation. Everything from uh, consumer lending, but online instead of your loan sharks as three quarters <laughs> to neobanks, the first with neobanks like Chime, um, Tala, etc. And then to financial infrastructure like Plaid, Tank, how to digitize uh, your financial information and how to build an API based platform for exchanges of your financial information. And then later on to new and emerging and frontier markets as well, getting to invest and at least get to know and connect with emerging projects in Africa, in Latin America, and in South Asia, et cetera, and make some investments in those markets. That really broadened my view, my perspective on how um, technology can be used to solve a lot of, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of financial issues we're seeing in the world that is also uh, corresponding with the trend of open finance I'm seeing, right? Because from traditional finance, working with financial institutions to using technology to give user the power and the, of, of finance and financial decision to making financial data more transparent through building financial infrastructure like Plaid and Tink, et cetera, the natural progression for me as a person is to be more curious about how much more decentralized finance could be. So I got really excited and interested in DeFi, decentralized finance, naturally as part of that progression. 
And as people would say, you would fall into the rabbit hole of getting into DeFi, <laughs> learning more DeFi, about DeFi in the DeFi summer, including working with PayPal and some product groups within PayPal on some DeFi and cryptocurrency initiatives. Um, that got me closer to learning more about Web3 and crypto in general. Yeah. And then that eventually made me excited about building a company myself in the Web3 space. Mm -hmm. Web3 is really, really unique in so many aspects. At the surface level, everyone knows that it's a new technology. It's a new world people are building. It can enable user-owned information. It makes value exchange more transparent. But from building a project in crypto myself, I've realized that there are so many other parts about building in Web3 that I truly enjoy. Let's take community and user as an example here. In Web2, we're in traditional technology, we're in traditional industries and traditional finance. It takes a very long time for you to collect user feedback. Let's think about a product question you have in mind or a survey question you have in mind. You'll have to ideate what kind of questions put them into questionnaire. Sometimes you'll have to hire a consulting firm for the distribution and collecting of the information. And then you'll have to summarize all the information into a survey, publish a white paper. The entire cycle of collecting user feedback, community feedback, and product feedback could take, let's say, two to six months. It's a very, very lengthy process. Mm -hmm. Versus in Web3, because of the global decentralized and real-time nature of community building in Web3, if I have a question within 24 hours, I will be able to collect more than 100,000 responses. That's the beauty of Web3. Because people um, are 24-7 online, <laughs> which makes um, building a product very, very exciting. That also directly feeds into velocity of building product. Uh, it's just so much faster from a technology perspective. It's mm -hmm. the building Legos are much more nimble. And from a product iteration perspective, the cycle of getting feedback, getting market reaction to your product uh, becomes a lot speedier. So mm -hmm. I know that was a really, really long answer of how I got into crypto, but that's no, that my journey today. Yeah, yeah, no, that's uh, very interesting to hear. So maybe I want to kind of ask a little bit about that example you talked about. I thought that in Web2, you can sort of also do that, right? If you have some sort of community and then you can issue some sort of questionnaire and then whoever participates in the questionnaire can provide their input and you can gather that. So what's the difference between collecting that in Web3 versus Web2? It's about the velocity of your community. I've met so many Web2 builders who are trying to build a community. It is an intentional uh, and sometimes can be a lengthy process of building a community. And just for comparison, since August, we have built a community of 100,000 unique users across Discord, Telegram, and on Twitter, and across 40 different countries. We have selected 244 individuals as MASA ambassador talking about our projects. Web3 by nature is a lot more global, a lot more decentralized. The kind of users you are able to reach out to are not limited by your traditional marketing and community building method. That's just purely refreshing for a builder who's trying to build a community anywhere. Got it. Got it. Okay. Um, so then you mentioned that you wanted to be an entrepreneur at some point once you got interested in DeFi. But then how did you, because you went to work for FAST. I don't know if that was really a job job or just kind of 
helping to build that company from ground up. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Because I think you were there for a couple of years at least and worked your way up to VP. Yeah, I think um, it's wanting to be an entrepreneur is not a new concept to me. Being、mm-hmm. able to be an entrepreneur, end of the day, it's about ownership. We're not talking about cap table ownership from a pure numbers perspective. We're thinking about being able to take an idea from inception to MVP to going to market and eventually to a product that your users love and hopefully to a financial outcome as well.、Mm-hmm. I really enjoy taking control of the ownership from end to end, which makes being an entrepreneur a very enticing concept for me. Because when you work at an organization, granted, you can enjoy a lot more resources. You don't have to be super、uh, resource poor or super scrappy on a day to day. Because someone else has already built the infrastructure, the groundwork for you to do your job. Versus when you are entrepreneur, you literally create something from nothing. For me, I really enjoy that process. That's the reason why I think being an entrepreneur is a very enticing, uh, enticing uh, prospect for me. Mm-hmm. Which is not to say that being entrepreneur doesn't have its drawbacks. It one hundred percently adds a lot of stress and anxiety. It's still that's a downside of having ownership, right? Because you're the owner, you feel responsible for everything. You feel responsible for your entire team. You constantly worry about the direction of the company, the financial runway of the company, how this campaign would fare, how this product would launch, how. Much delivery we can do in the next cycle, etc. So it also weighs on you because of ownership and because that you need to be responsible for the project you're building. And then to your question about fast、um, at PayPal Ventures, I think that's what actually first opened up my、uh, my eyes about the possibility of becoming an entrepreneur because I didn't grow up in an environment of tech. I just wasn't aware that being a tech entrepreneur was ever a possibility because I just didn't know many people who would be able to do that.、Um, I grew up in a family、um, mostly in the media industry, so tech is very, very remote from the media industry, especially back then in the '90s. And then、uh, when I went to college, I majored in international relations、uh, in DC. And that's a completely different world compared to technology, especially back then when policy and technology those two groups don't talk to each other. Right now, of course, there are some interesting overlap, but back then, very minimal interaction. And、uh, when I worked in investment banking, I don't think tech was like a major trend back then either.、Um, I was mostly interacting and networking with finance professionals, so still, I didn't know that being a tech entrepreneur was a possibility. It was only when I got to PayPal Ventures, I got to see that wait, there's actually a pathway for me as an individual to become a tech entrepreneur. Because、uh, as a venture capitalist, your job is to work with entrepreneurs. So I got to meet with a lot of them, connect with a lot of them, see how they work, and see the stress of being an entrepreneur, which really inspired me、uh, and opened up my eyes. And then naturally, after. PayPal. My experience being a venture capitalist, I thought to me the question of whether entrepreneurship is a path for me. Like, basically, can I do the job? So、mm-hmm. I wanted to join a very super early stage company, ideally pre-seed or seed, and just to try it out to see whether the entrepreneur with a startup, early stage startup, world was for me. 
Back then, FAST only had fewer than 10 people. I was hired as one of the first business hired to join the company. Mm -hmm. And I was there for two and a half years from pre-seed, seed stage, all the way to the eventual acquisition of the company. And needless to say, the two and a half years felt like 10 years. I, I, I definitely aged a lot because I saw the good, the bad, the ugly about the journey of building a company. Everything that could possibly go right and everything that could possibly go wrong, I had a very condensed experience at FAST. And for that, I'm very grateful because that eventually led me to decide that despite all of the bad things and terrible things I've seen, I still really enjoy being an entrepreneur. And that's uh, why I eventually took a step uh, to start my own project. That's very well said. So naturally, that leads me to the next question. Do you think entrepreneurship is something that's learned or born with? Because a lot of people work in Silicon Valley and seen this culture, but not everybody will go out and become an entrepreneur, right? Do you think you have some innate ability that just got awakened, but that was something that you were born with? Or you really kind of saw it firsthand and learned the ropes, and then that's why you decided to start on your own? I think I have a very biased personal view to this question because I'm the kind of um, people who always think that it's up to you to create, it's up to you to learn. So uh, when it comes to born versus raised, for me, I would always answer race, no matter if the question is becoming an entrepreneur or like becoming driven or do anything. I always think that there's no concept as destiny or natural born um, ability, and you'll be able to create something from nothing. I think take our examples as first generation immigrants, right? Mm -hmm. We came here, literally didn't have anything and created a career, a life for ourselves in this new country. I think that's a fine testament of everything um, can be created. However, play my own devil's advocate here. Um, it will be wrong for me to say that everything one can achieve everything in the world because there are so many innate injustice structurally in the world. Some people are born in a more superior socioeconomic structure and some people were not so fortunate to enjoy all the resources. So of course, some people can get to the opportunities to be trained or to be better trained through education, through their family, through opportunities that were fed to them when they were growing up. But by and large, I still think that it's more about um, earned and trained and raised rather than born. That's great. That's a great answer. Um, so how, if you don't mind me asking, how many hours are you working now on average as an entrepreneur? <laughs> yeah, that, that's a great question. I, when I first saw the question, I was thinking about it. Um, again, I think a couple of years ago, I, when I was working at FAST as an early employee instead of as an entrepreneur, I thought that I understood what it takes to do early stage startup, the lifestyle, the amount of hours and efforts required to build an early stage startup. Mm -hmm. But I was completely wrong. You can never understand the experience of being an entrepreneur until you become one. Mm -hmm. And why do I say that? It's not necessarily about you working many, many more hours. Sometimes you work fewer hours because you get to have a team, you get to have people who can uh, build around you and people who can support you. So it's not about the absolute amount of hours per se. 
It's about you constantly thinking about your job. It's about sometimes you becoming your job. For instance, I would have so many work dreams. I would dream about like this investors. I would dream about our runway. I would dream about everything about our project. So can I count the hours I was dreaming about work as working? I don't know. But when you are entrepreneur, sometimes it's really, really, really hard to draw a line between you and your project. Because for me, at least, I constantly think about it which is actually a call for better mental health because sometimes I do think it's really important to carve out some time for you and for you only. Um, I do that through some workout sessions, especially some very challenging workouts like boxing. When I box, I could not think of anything else because it was so like physically challenging. My brain could only focus on one thing that is not to be punched and not get hurt during the boxing session so during those rare and precious moments i definitely do not do not think about work but normally when i'm just like thinking having dinner having lunch taking a walk um or even dreaming i think about work yep yep now that's funny that you said that because i listened to this podcast where joe rogan interviewed mark zuckerberg that's kind of what he said too he picked up foiling i think is what it's called and he had to concentrate otherwise he would just get swept up by the waves, right? So that's his way of decompressing and completely take his mind off of the company, which makes total sense. So I think I'm hearing 24-7 basically is is the answer. Yeah, and to be to be honest, like it doesn't matter where you're like a, a failing entrepreneur, where you're Mark Zuckerberg, no matter how big or how small, no matter how early or how late stage your project is, you always worry about different things. You're always anxious about different things. Um, when you're small, it's about whether you can build the product, whether you can hit proper market fit. When it's big at Mark's level, of course, you deal with so much more complexity around your business, regulatory pressure, the next congressional hearing, managing a massive company, getting into a new international market, etc. So the worry never stops. It's just the nature of the matters that worry you change over time. Yeah, well said. So what's in your future? Where do you see Masa going it sounds like it's picking up some great steam, which is great. And congrats again on that. How far or how long can you go with the Masa venture, I guess? Yeah. So our vision for Masa is for Masa to become the identity for every single user who interacts with the Web3 world. Let's take a step back and contextualize what this means, right? Mm -hmm. If we think about generational um progress when it comes to acceptance or adoption or of digital products we're both millennials and we're digital native right um instagram facebook and things like that are not foreign to us versus they might be quite foreign to our parents generation and our grandparents generation absolutely have never heard of them till we force them to pay attention to it during christmas or thanksgiving so my prediction is that our next generation so the younger gen z gen alpha or even future generation when they grow up, they will be wallet native. Web3 will be something that they grow up with, just like how we grew up with Instagram and Facebook, etc. So for them, wallet will be their new way of navigating a new world. And I want every single one of them has Masa as their identity as they navigate this new world of Web3 that they will grow up with. So that's our end vision. Of course, that is a very, very grand vision. And it will take... Um, 
10,000, if not more iterations to get there. Um, right now, we are a C-stage company. To reach the next inflection point, it's about um, experimenting with different, different kind of product uh, positioning and go-to-market approach with velocity. That's the reason why I truly, truly enjoy working with my co-founder and with my team, because we're very aligned with the approach of velocity. As a very fundamental infrastructure product like identity, uh, it's not like you're building the payment acceptance for um, SMB like in the format of a square. So that's a very concrete product. We're building a very conceptual and a very technical product. It takes time, iteration, and different kind of experiments to find the factor of growth for us. And we're trying that very, very hard every day. And we do that with such velocity. We only launched on a testnet six months ago, and now we have already reached um, half a million in Soban token mints. And my goal for us is to reach a million sooner rather than later on the mainnet very soon. And of course, like beyond Masa, I also have like a picture of myself where I want to play as an individual, etc. And there are like missions and goals I have in my life. Um, I definitely want to contribute to building the world that I want to live in in the future. So that too. <laughs> yeah, oh, awesome. Maybe three follow-up questions. One is <laughs> how many people are on your team? Because you keep mentioning this team. Yeah, we have uh, 12 individuals working on the team. Uh, that's actually a really interesting concept of running a remote and globally decentralized team. Mm -hmm. It can sometimes be quite a controversial topic if you talk about it on Twitter or amongst tech friends as well. Because a lot of people believe that in order to build the best product, build the best project and company, you'll have to work in person because there's a lot of um, like co coffee counter conversation or there's a lot of like, yeah, uh, rapport you will be able to build in person. But mm -hmm. at Masa, we took a completely different route of building a globally remote and decentralized team. Our community member, for example, only prefers to communicate with us through written text messages instead mm -hmm. of speaking during meeting. I think that's completely fine as well. Mm -hmm. My philosophy and my co-founder's philosophy is that economic opportunities should not be born and should be created. And it should be equal no matter where you are born and where you grew up. That means that we cannot only extend opportunities of building hopefully the next big project, Masa, to people who only live in New York, San Francisco, Boston, or a few other countries. That's the reason why we intentionally build a very global and decentralized team. We have team members across Germany, UK, Serbia, Uruguay, and the US across LA, San Francisco, Austin, New York, and many more. Mm -hmm. It is very much aligned with our philosophy of economic opportunities should be equal, no matter where you are and where you were born. Yeah. Makes total sense. So second question is, how do people join your community? If let's say I want to be, I think you said ambassador, how do I hmm. kind of get on the platform? Yeah. Yeah. So in Web3, the most popular platforms are Discord, Telegram, and a lot of people use Twitter as well. So that's where you can participate uh, in the Masa community, learn more about our upcoming product launches, participate in various campaigns and activities we have planned for our community members. Uh, if you're not on Discord, I would highly encourage you to join Discord. It's a very different vibe. 
it feels uh, sometimes a lot more chaotic, definitely a lot more international, very decentralized, and sometimes can be 24-7 as well, because it does attract a very, very global crowd. Okay, yeah, I'll certainly look into that. I think of the three you mentioned, I'm only on Twitter. Um, okay, so the last- Twitter is great too, I love Twitter. <laughs> yeah, who doesn't? Um, so the last follow-up is, you mentioned that you have other visions and ambitions outside of Masa. Do you mind sharing maybe one of them? I don't know if it's just one or multiple or, cause you said building yes. a world you want to live in, yep. Yeah, so it's more about my personal philosophy and what kind of causes I am personally behind as a person. So MASA is a way to achieve that through building a more global economy, hiring a decentralized global team that is aligned with my personal philosophy that there should be a global village instead of separate sovereignties uh, who are more isolationist. Um, so taking a step back, I was born in early 90s in China where we finally opened up to the world, joined WTO in mid-90s, and really benefited from being part of the global economy. Nowadays, you see a lot of countries becoming a lot more isolationist, having a lot more right-wing arguments about sometimes xenophobia um, and many other protectionist arguments. I don't want to see that. I want to see a world that is truly global, decentralized, and without border. I think that's part of my core philosophies. The second core philosophy I have, uh, which is something I've been working on for a very, very long time, is really gender equality. That is something that I personally experience as a woman. And that is something that I have seen across wherever I go, right? Um, back in college, I was an international relations major and I did different kind of field studies in Mexico, in India, in Ghana, uh, and obviously back home in China as well. Uh, like gender equality uh, have made different kind of progress in different countries. In some economies, it have gone very, very far, but in some, it's still very, very far behind from what I think will be ideal and will be just. Mm -hmm. So that's something that I would love to spend time and spend the rest of my life working on as well. So those are two um, causes or missions I have for me as an individual. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so do you have any words of encouragement for people who want to be an entrepreneur or are just starting to kind of go on this path? Yeah, I don't think this is necessarily words of encouragement, actually. Uh, it's mostly, <laughs> it, it might be the opposite. <laughs> it, it might be the opposite, but I, I would just say it anyways. Mm -hmm. I do think that our current society has a tendency of glorifying entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. um, when we look at magazine covers, we look at Elon Musk, we look at Mark Zuckerberg, we look at Emily Weiss, we look at Forbes 30 under 30, thinking that they're geniuses and we should be just like them. Mm -hmm. However, I think entrepreneurship is definitely not for everyone. I don't think everyone should and need to become an entrepreneur. It is a very unique path that I hope a lot more people are more openly sharing about the underbelly of becoming an entrepreneur, the difficulties, the mental challenges, the, the ugly side of becoming an entrepreneur instead of um, putting entrepreneurship always on magazine cover and always glorifying entrepreneurship. Well, that's really interesting. Thanks for sharing that very different perspective. And I truly understand where you're coming from and um, you know, appreciate sharing that. 
So maybe the next question, I don't know if you sort of probably answer that, but what do you think is the one thing that sets people up for success versus they would not even get started or fail? Yeah, I think it's about volition. It's about always being eager to try because you'll never know whether you can make it until you try. Uh, sometimes it is very, very scary to try. For example, uh, naturally, I am actually very media shy, despite growing up in a family of media professionals. I think that's probably what made me media shy in the first place. I couldn't tell. Thank you. Thank you. And let me tell you, I actually never watch any of my interview clips because I just couldn't bear seeing myself in any of the interviews. I always... Uh, secretly think that I either sound stupid or I look wrong or there's something well, wrong with me whenever I do any media appearances. Thank you. Thanks. But I, I, there's still like a mini person inside of me or a voice inside of me that would voice yeah. Yeah. all sorts of insecurities, right? But still, I did those things. I tried. Uh, mm -hmm. One day, I'll finally pick up the courage to watch the clips, to listen to myself talking <laughs> to people and on press, but still you need to try. So to answer your question, I think uh, just the willingness and the courage to try and to experiment and to experience is what would eventually set people apart. Yep, that's great. All right, so my last question for you is where can people find more about you? Do you have... Yeah, I, I um, follow me on Twitter. I, I don't post a lot. That's, again, part of me being very insecure about things I say. Um, I I think I could never come up with anything clever to say on Twitter. That's the reason why I don't post very often. Well, but Twitter's still, please follow Twitter. me on Twitter. <laughs> is it just, uh, what's the handle? Um, Calanthia? Um, I think I'm just Calanthia, uh, three A's on Twitter. <laughs> okay. okay, that's easy enough. Cool, awesome. And of course, your company's website, I guess. Yeah, so... The website is masa.finance and company Twitter handle is getmasa.fi fi on Twitter. All right. That's really great. Thank you so much, Kalanthia. I really enjoyed our conversation and thank you so much for your time. I know you're super busy. Of course.